This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Christopher Simmons about his latest book, Just Design, about why San Francisco is a good place for designers, and about why designers should be continually redefining their profession. They should be creating work that does advance what it means to be a designer. And I think if we lose sight of that, that's how things start to stagnate. We start to make ourselves accountable to everyone but ourselves. Here's Debbie Millman. Christopher Simmons is a perfect fit for Design Matters because he really, truly believes that design matters. Christopher is the principal of the design studio Mine. He's also an educator, a design advocate, and a past president of the AIGA San Francisco chapter. During his tenure there, he created San Francisco Design Week. And by the time he was done, Mayor Gavin Newsom declared San Francisco to be a city where design makes a difference. Of course, design makes a difference everywhere. And last year, as if to emphasize that point, Christopher came out with a book about good design that's good for the world. It's his fourth book, and it's called Just Design. It's a loaded title, and we're going to unpack it. Christopher Simmons, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So, Christopher, what's up with you kissing Sean Adams on the lips on Facebook? Well, I kissed him in, on the lips in real life, not just on Facebook. But, well, I saw it on Facebook. Um, I'm assuming it was in real life. It was in real life. I was speaking at a conference in Toronto uh, last week, and as part of one of the stories I was telling there, Sean factored into that. He was instrumental in getting me a, a really amazing opportunity. Um, back around 2004, which is I think before I met Sean, he had recommended me as a judge for a competition for Step Magazine. And through that, I met Emily Potts, who was the editor at the time. And I judged that competition. Um, I had really no interaction with Sean, so it was just he had taken a liking to me and used his influence to uh, be a bit of a kingmaker or a prince maker or a popper maker. I'm not sure which. And, <laughs> let me um, interrupt you for one second and yeah. just let my listeners know that Sean Adams, in case they aren't aware, is a really brilliant designer. He's a partner in the firm Adams Morioka, and he's also past president of the National AIGA. And, and ridiculously good looking. And ridiculously good looking. And also, I think, related to John Adams, our past president I from way back when. So he's yeah. like really royalty. Exactly. So then through Emily, I then had this relationship with Step Magazine. And uh, when she left and Tom Biederbeck came on as the editor, he asked me to do a column. And that's how I started writing my column for Step Magazine. And Tom sort of over the course of two or so years that I wrote that column really turned me into a much better writer than I was. And as part of writing that column, you know, when you write a blog or a magazine column or a, or a book, as you know, you get different kinds of feedback. And so on a blog, the feedback's almost instant. You, can, you know, you suck, you suck, you suck five minutes after <laughs> you post anything. Yes, and, I'm um, aware. <laughs> but a magazine, you kind of just never hear back. You work on it, you know, a month in advance, it sort of disappears from your consciousness. It reappears on a magazine rack someplace, and then you just don't know how people feel about it. But every once in a while, you get some, some feedback. And so I got a photo my email one day from this guy named Josh Higgins, who's a designer in, in San Diego, hadn't met him either. Just a picture of him on the beach in Hawaii reading my column saying, I really like what you're writing. And so that started that relationship. Earlier this year, in January, Josh put his practice on hold to become the design director for Obama for America. And he 
ask me for some advice on something, I use that opportunity to say, hey, love to design something for you. Love to design something for you or love to design something for the president of the United States of America? Both, but in this case, the president of the United States of America. <laughs> and so at this conference in Chicago, I showed that project, which we had just finished. Uh, it was a limited edition art series, and the president has number one in the series. I have number two. Josh has number three. And Sean, Sean has number four. Has number four and uh, a kiss. Wow. So what did you design? I actually brought one for you, so I can show it to you. <gasps> is it, it number five? It's uh, number 75, I'm afraid. That's cool. That's cool. 75 um, is a great number. Yeah. Thank you. It's basically just a, a sign kind of celebrating his reinauguration. So it just says, yes, we're united. And it's sort of done in that sort of yes, we're open style in the Obama colors. And it's very, very simple, very typographic, but also very satisfying to do some work that you really believe in for a person and a, and a cause that I think matters. So let's talk a little bit about how you got to this place in your life. You were born in Canada, but you now live in San Francisco. When and why did you move to the United States? I moved when I was 15. I moved with my parents, so I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. I hated it, by the way. You hated uh, Canada or hated moving? I loved Canada. I hated moving. Um, well, 15 so is a hard time to move. 15, you're just in the absolute throes of adolescence. And I thought that Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is where I was living, had everything that a person could ever want in their life. Um, Moved to uh, actually not directly to San Francisco, but to the East Bay and just thought it was hell on earth. It was the hottest summer on record at the time, sort of in the, you know, low hundreds every day. It was 1989. So we had the earthquake in October. And it just seemed like this place just sucked for me. Um, I hated my high school. I went from a small private school to a large public school, you know, maybe 14 people in a class to 600. Why did your parents move? Well, my mom was from the Bay Area and um, my stepdad at the time. My mom's second husband got a job at UC Press, I think design director at UC Press. And um, so I had a lot of exposure to graphic design when I was a kid as well. And so was that why you decided to become a designer? You know, in retrospect, it probably was because there was a lot of sort of design ephemera around the house. So color separations and I went to some paper mills and I think even on a press check when I was, you know, nine or ten years old. When he was working at UC Press, there was a designer there named Steve Rennick who passed away, sadly, a few years ago. He was a teacher also at CCA, where I teach now. And I watched him. I sort of shadowed him for a day. He designed a book cover a day. They publish, on average, a book a day um, wow. through uh, University of California Press. And uh, it was just amazing to watch him work. And I'm not sure that was exactly the totality of my interest, but that was certainly a factor. When did you make peace with California? You've been there ever since. Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, now living in San Francisco, I mean, what I like about San Francisco, it's an incredibly design-friendly city, first of all. Thanks to you. <laughs> and uh, Well, I'm, I'm – no, I'm just along for the ride. But the kind of work that goes on there is also really interesting because outside of D.C., they're the most headquarters for nonprofit organizations are located in the Bay Area. So there's a lot of that sort of issue and cause-based work. And then there's, of course, Silicon Valley. So you have – the tech uh, industry and biotech. And, you know, there's just a really strong entrepreneurial spirit there. You know, even during the recession, we would get people who were ex-tech employees who saw maybe that there was going to be some downsizing coming. And rather than, you know, sort of get morose about that or look to make a lateral change, they said, you know what, let me just re-examine my life. Let me just open that, you know, Croatian import-export fine foods business that I've always wanted to do. Let me start that restaurant that I've always been dreaming about. And so... You get people who are passionate at all levels about the work, and it's just great to work with those kinds of people. So you started your business, mine, 
your independent graphic design studio in 2004. Prior to that, you were acting creative director at Method for a short time. Prior to that, you worked at the studio Alter Pop for seven years. What made you decide to start your own studio? So I worked at Alter Pop for actually seven and a half years. And there were two partners there, Doug Akagi and his wife, Dorothy Remington. Doug was one of my teachers, actually my first graphic design teacher. I started as an intern. I started in a spring semester, stayed on for the summer. And through a series of sort of fortunate events, I suppose, I... What um, were the fortunate events? Actually, having said that, the first is a very unfortunate event. Um, During that summer, one of the designers who worked there, actually the senior designer, got cancer. And she had to take a leave of absence. And so we were sitting in our job meeting one day and talking about, well, who would we get to fill in? And I said, well, I'll fill in just audacious, sort of precocious nitwit that I was. And Doug, who's a very, very kind and thoughtful individual, I think that might have been the only time that he's actually laughed at someone, (laughs) (laughs) right at them, because it was was an absurd suggestion. So that just sort of went by the wayside. The next day, he sort of came up to me and said, well, you know, you could do this on a temporary basis. At the time, that designer was responsible primarily for, for one main project, was his biggest client. has been his client for 20 years, still a client of his. So he said, I'm going to bring in someone else anyway, someone who's more senior, then there'll be some oversight, but you could sort of do the day-to-day on it. But he said, you know, when that's done, you're going to have to go back to being an intern. I mean, you have to be okay with that. And I said, yeah, I'm fine with that. And he said, well, go home, think about it, because it's going to be harder than you think. So I went home, I pretended to think about it. I came in the next morning and said, yeah, I've given it a lot of thought and I can do it. So we did that. And then um, thankfully she came back, made a full recovery. And then shortly after that, the junior designer left and I kind of slid into that role. And over the years, sort of one thing led to another. And by the time I left, I was a principal in the firm. And we were talking about how to turn over ownership from Doug and Dorothy, who were at that time thinking towards retirement. They're still actively practicing, but they're looking towards the day when they don't have to work on a day-to-day basis. And as part of that process, as you sort of evaluate the company and you're looking at, well, you know, what are the assets of the company? What's the revenue? What's the client base, the reputation, the staff, you know, all the things that sort of make up the valuation. It's a very complicated, time-consuming, expensive process to do that. And of course, they'd built this company from scratch over 20, 25 years. I would be buying into it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, a lot of that value is me. A lot of that, what I'd be buying is buying back myself. Um, And some of the clients, although it's great to have wonderful clients, didn't represent the kind of work that I wanted to do. And we just got to a point where I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go on my own. So you said that at the time you weren't entirely happy with the body of work, the subject matter of the work. What kind of work did you want to do? I don't know what I wanted to do. I think I always, you know, at that time I was a pretty young designer, pretty idealistic. And so every project sort of had to be groundbreaking for me. It had to sort of push the envelope in terms of what it meant to design. And it, I was looking around at firms like Method would be one or Tolison or Cahan, um, you know, were sort of some of the big relevant design firms at the time. And they seemed to be doing much more courageous work than we were doing um, for the most part. We did some, I think, really, you know, excellent work, but we were a bit more conservative, I guess. And uh, I, re- I have a lot of respect for that. But it, as a young designer, it wasn't thrilling to me. And I think I wanted to be thrilled. Then, of course, I started my own business and I took whatever I could get. So it was kind of a backwards move to move forward. I'm really fascinated by the way you described doing courageous work. How would you define that? Well, I think at the time, I probably would have defined it a little bit differently than I might now. At the time, I think it was about the look of it, the sort of... The edginess? The edginess. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the kind of thing you would sort of, you would create and say, no client will ever sign off on that. You know, if there's a continuum and and sort of 
boring is at one end, safe is in the middle, and challenging is at the far end. I wanted stuff that was always at the, at the challenging end. And of course, you can't get that 100% of the time. Now I think there's, a, there's a, a phrase that I sort of tell myself sometimes, which is about courage and design, which is sort of having the courage to be the very least. Um, it takes a lot, I think. At the time, I was looking at, like, what can I add to this to make it you know, more interesting? What sort of design layer typographic trick, uh, production technique could I sort of attack this with? And now I look at how can I get to the core of the idea? How can I make this so simple, so pure that people are shocked by how crystal it is? I first found out about you and your work in the mid-2000s when you created the art installation Everything is Okay, the collaborative art project aimed at provoking people to more critically consider the status quo, which consists of police-style barricade tape emblazoned with the message, everything is okay. And you've suggested that the statement can be read either as an affirmative, reassuring phrase or a condemning indictment of mediocrity. And so I want to talk a little bit more about this. How did you even come up with the idea? And is it true that the original idea for this promotion was a screw bush poster? Yeah, and that's a um, well, that's a whole separate story. But the everything is okay. So I mentioned a moment ago that there was this designer at our office who had cancer and had to take this leave of absence. She made a recovery, but but the cancer came back in a different form several years later at around 2003, 2004. At that point, she just dedicated herself to her health and said, I'm going to sort of give up design for the foreseeable future. So it was a sort of a huge life-changing event for her in, in many ways. But I was seeing it directly, and, and we all were in the, in the office. This is when I was still working for Doug. And out of that, we thought, well, we want to do something. You know, the same way that like when there's an earthquake, all designers just want to make a bunch of posters about it. And uh, I was in the opening ceremony store earlier today, and they have these T-shirts for, you know, Hurricane Sandy relief with the, I guess, all the boroughs kind of arranged to a heart or something. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's nice. And I thought, oh, God, like another one of these. Um, sorry, whoever did that. But we had that same impulse. We thought, okay, well, what can we do that's within our group? We can't cure cancer. We can't make her, you know, healthier. You know, we can basically give her friendship and comfort and the flexibility that she needs to address uh, her life issues. But we wanted to do something more, something that sort of reached out. And so we thought, well, we'll make this website that was all about all the things that are wrong in the world and how to fix them. So just links to organizations that are working for positive change, that kind of thing. And we called it Everything is Okay as a kind of ambiguous sort of notion, is it or isn't it? And then to promote that, we thought, well, we should do some sort of poster campaign. I don't know why we thought a poster campaign would be good to promote a website. Designers but always think posters are designers, the right way to promote things. I like to think that I've learned something over the years, but what I learn more and more is that I'm just the same idiot I was, you know, 15 years ago. We all um, are. So we toyed around with a bunch of ideas and basically abandoned them. And, and then I, when I started my own firm, I talked to Doug and said, I'd like to pick up this idea again. He said, yeah, go for it. We don't care if you, if you take it on. And through a series of design exercises, we came up with this, with this tape. And it was meant to just sort of be this sort of guerrilla marketing campaign. Well, what happened was no one went to the website, but people kept emailing us saying, where can I get some of that tape? So we would just send it to them, thinking that would promote the website and people might start going. But all that happened was that people saw the tape and more people wanted the tape. And so we started selling it. And for a long time, I resisted that the medium was the message, to borrow a phrase. I really wanted it to do the thing that I wanted it to do, which was promote this other idea. But what people were telling me and telling us with their actions was the idea of this website was not a big idea. It was not an important idea. The idea of the tape was much more compelling. 
Now, you've said that you think that much of the success of Everything is Okay depended on its neutrality. And I'm curious about that comment. In what way? Well, I think you can, as I was saying, or as you read, that phrase can be interpreted either way. So, so people frequently, I see, you know, they post about it or they'll send me something about it or we'll talk about it and they'll say, I just love that affirmation. I just love everything's okay. This makes me feel better. But if you take that message and it's on caution tape, so inherently the medium is saying like, warning, everything is okay. So there's some kind of distance between the medium and the message there that has to be resolved by people. And some people resolve it in a positive way and some people resolve it in a much more cynical way. I probably tend towards the latter. But if you see this tape, you know, framing a political demonstration or wrapped around a bicycle that has been completely stripped by, you know, some thief, you know, that changes the meaning. I mean, the context of the message changes how you interpret it. And so in that sense, I think the neutrality is important, that, that you could sort of elevate it or denigrate it depending on, I guess, your own personal worldview. I've read that you've said designers exist to advance the profession. Our work must reach beyond the specific client need or intent. It must reflect something good in ourselves. And I'm wondering if you feel designers have an obligation to help inspire change and contribute to society. Actually, not to pat myself on the back, that sounds like really good writing. I, I'm shocked that I wrote that. I have to tell me where you found that at some point. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think the point of that is, um, well, there's, so there's two points. One is whether or not designers should use their powers for good, as we say, right? We should inspire, you know, positive change in society. But the first point of that is about advancing the profession. Um, at the AJA conference in uh, Arizona, Pivot, I guess it was, Kurt Anderson had a session. I'm not sure if you remember it, but he was talking about this article he had written in Vanity Fair where he was comparing design sort of over the span of sort of two-decade chunks. So from like the, you know, the turn of the century to the 20s, 20s to the 40s, 40s to the 60s, et cetera. And he's saying that if you look at any 20-year period, the design of that era is very identifiable, whether it's fashion, automotive design, uh, communication design, whatever. You get to the last 20 years and there's been very little movement. Um, so this is Kurt's idea. And that really stuck with me because I started thinking about it and thinking, yeah, I think that's true. I don't know if it's that we're so close to it that we can't see it, but that notwithstanding, I do think there's something there. So, of course, I have to think about, well, why is that? Maybe how is it our fault as designers? designers, What are we not doing? And I think what's happened is we've kind of become addicted to this idea of the triple bottom line, the people, planet, profits idea. When I first started working, it was mostly profits. You had a client and they wanted something and so you would do it the best you could. And if you did it well, that was a good job. And then we started talking about, well, the environment should be a consideration as well. And so sustainability became a big kind of conversation, particularly in San Francisco, where I think we're already kind of predisposed to sort of think like a bunch of hippies. That, um, you know, that conversation, which was marginal elsewhere, became a really mainstream conversation very quick. So now we have profits and planet. And then more recently, people we brought in the idea of, of people, that it should you know, benefit all the people who are affected by it, whether it's in manufacturing or the people it touches. And that can seem like a very tidy little triumvirate of like if I satisfy people, planet, profit, those three big ideas, those three big buckets, then I'm doing a good job. But that leaves out the profession or the passion. It leaves out the requirement that a designer, for example, is a creative person and they should be creating work that is, to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, challenging, that pushes, that does advance what it means to design and what it means to be a designer. And I think if we lose sight of that, that's how things start to stagnate. We start to make ourselves accountable to everyone but ourselves. How do you feel about designers that don't 
um, feel that way, or as as Ken Garland might have described it, are really buying into the high pitched scream of consumer selling. I love them. You do? Yeah, sure. Why not? The world's a big place. It's a very plural place. I don't want everyone to be exactly like me to have exactly the same values as I do. I mean, it's interesting. We just had this election and the it's great to sit around with all your friends and say how great Obama is and how much, you know, we're glad Romney didn't win. That's my personal view. But it's actually more interesting to talk to someone who has a different point of view and can have that discussion. And so if there are designers who have a different point of view than I do, I'd rather talk to them about our differences than just be reaffirmed that everyone thinks the same way I do. I think that's one of the issues with media now because there's so much choice and because there's so much that we can go to to affirm our own ideas. You get very comfortable in that constant reinforcement and I'm afraid that there are times when another point of view might be actually healthy to have. It's kind of scary because we – I mean everything's about sort of targeting and customizing things to a a user or a customer experience and I think – you know, I don't want to profess any wisdom here or prophecy, but I think that we may look back on this period many years from now, decades hence, and say that was one of the big mistakes that we made. So there's this magazine. Um, I'm not sure if it still exists, but I, it came to my attention because it was called Mine that I think Newsweek put out. It was an online magazine, and the idea was that you could pull from many different sources. So whatever media company owns Newsweek, whatever else they own, you could sort of get, you know, I don't know what it is, Sports Illustrated and CNN. But you could sort of channel all your sort of media into this one magazine that basically just had the stuff you were interested in. But that's a huge problem. One of the great things, my wife got me the uh, subscription to the New York Times for my birthday a year ago. One of the great things is, you know, I flip right to the arts section. I read the stuff I'm interested in. But there's always some column on the side that has to do with a book I never heard of, a film I never thought about, an artist that I wasn't aware of. And then there are all these other sections of the newspaper that are about, <laughs> you know, the world and, um, and other points of view and sports. Well, I like <laughs> sports. But, um, but, you know, it's just stuff that you kind of accidentally get exposed to because you're not going out of your way to shelter yourself from it. And I think that's important. Let's talk about your brand new book, Just Design. It is a bit of a double entendre. And I want to know why you decided to name it Just Design instead of perhaps something like Good Design. Well, that's a great question. It was called Good Design uh, initially. That's how it was pitched and that's how it was sold. And that's the premise that we are working under for most of the book. But as you know, neither editors nor publishers nor authors ultimately decide the title of their books. I mean, probably at some stage in your career you get to. But I bet um, Stephen King can decide. I think, yeah. But well, yeah, him so, and- there's some distance between me and Mr. King Um, (laughs) still, thankfully. But so it turned out that there was, uh, you know, another book that came out that was called Good Design on a different topic, but you just can't have two books coming out within, you know, six months of each other with the same title for the same industry. So that shelved that. And so we went through a whole exercise. I think I came up with, or we in the studio came up with, I forget how many, but we submitted 10. The top of the list was Who Cares, which I thought was a fantastic title. And if you've read the book, as I'm sure you have. I haven't in a while. At the bottom of, of each sort of little case why study, it says care. why you should care. And so yeah. that's, you know, there's a there's that. Um, we settled on Just Design or, you know, their marketing department said, we'll call it Just Design. Uh, they thought who cares seemed negative. And I saw that as another phrase like everything's okay or Just Design that can be read however you want, depending what you bring to it. So I tend to think that people sort of bias themselves towards the positive. But what do I know? You're an optimist. I don't know if I'm an optimist, but people tend to think I am, so I'll take it. Anyway, so uh, it serves a couple of purposes. I think one, uh, or maybe several, you know, one is that it is meant to sort of be inspiring. So it's not a how-to book. It's it's about 
telling the stories behind these projects. And each project has a different story. So some are stories about how it came about. Some are stories about how effective they were. Some are stories just about the craft of it. And then it also, I guess, because it's a book and not a blog, it sort of is a time capsule. It's a bit of a, of a frozen moment of what design for social causes looked like in this period. And it will look different, you know, in five or ten years. Now, in the introduction of the book, you talk about design that is problem-seeking. And traditionally, designers have been taught and told that they should be problem-solvers. So this is really taking that notion and flipping it to the other side. Why be a problem-seeker as opposed to a problem-solver? Well, problem-seeking doesn't mean that you're not going to solve the problem in the end either. It just means that you're also going to play a role in defining what the problem is. That phrase, problem-seeking, is actually a phrase that Brian Collins came up with. We were both advisors to Project M, which is John Bielenberg's uh, thing in, in Alabama. And we were walking down this road and, and we were talking about sort of how incredible it was that these eight young designers had come together to not just complete a project in a month, but to sort of become immersed in the community, identify what the need was, figure out a way that they could actually make a difference, and then do it. And I just said, oh, they're just amazing problem solvers, because that was my definition. Designers are problem solvers. Said, no, it's not the problem solving that's interesting. It's the problem seeking. It's that they sought out that problem. They found it themselves. And that just really resonated with me. And at that moment, he said, you should write a book about this. And I, I said, would... no, you should write a book. He said, no, you should write this book. I'm like, all right, fine, I'll write the book. Well, in the book, you declare that if we choose to be optimistic, design is one of the only viable options that we have. Design with a big D, design that includes invention, innovation, human ingenuity, and creative problem solving through design thinking and execution. And I want to talk about what design with a big D really means. I go back and forth about this because I think there's a lot of value and relevance in being any kind of designer. I think typically we think of designer with the small d as being like a graphic designer, someone who is more kind of fulfilled by craft and the you know the making of things. And I don't want to say that, you know, big D is bigger or more important than little d because I think they go hand in hand. Um, and that's how I came in to the professions, how I was taught. I went to graphic design school. I took graphic design classes. I learned graphic design software, et cetera. But as I practice more, I find that the definition of the problem and really the expansive scope of a lot of what we deal with as designers, that has become more and more interesting to me. Everything is designed, right? I mean, you pick up anything and, and it's and experience with it's been designed. Sometimes it's been designed by a designer. Sometimes it's designed by a policymaker. Sometimes it's been designed by an author. Sometimes it's been designed by a, a tap dancer. I don't know. But everything is an experience that is happening for a reason. And I think the Big D is looking at, you know, why is this happening and what ways can we have an effect on the way this happens for people. And for a lot of us, communication design or graphic design is that avenue. Um, and for many others, there are other avenues as well. Most of the people that I talk to about good design or design with a capital D tend to have a very skeptical view of branding. And yet you don't really you have written quite a lot about branding on your blog for your classes at California College of the Arts. And you wrote in a recent article that if you want to be a brand, you must work from the inside out. A great logo isn't going to make a shitty product any less shitty, any more than a hard worker is going to make a bad boss a compelling leader. 
In this model, the inner layers affect the outer ones, not the other way around. And while that might be very critical, Christopher, of the notion of bad versus good products, it still shows a real respect for the process of branding that I was really surprised to read. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, cynicism around branding. And I had some at, at different stages as well. And people used to ask me what branding was. I said, oh, it's just a marketing word for what good designers have always done. But Austin McGee on your show a couple of weeks ago, I thought, made a really compelling argument for for what a brand is. I'm trying to not to use it as a verb anymore. Um, <laughs> and I immediately bought his book because I just I thought he was he was so coherent in his explanation. And his explanation is that a brand is sort of the totality of an experience. And you know, a lot of clients still they come to us and they say, well, we want a brand. And I'm thinking, well, you have a brand. I can help you communicate what that brand is, but we don't create it out of nothing. We create it out of your leadership, your product, your service, your marketing strategy, et cetera. And for a firm like ours, we're a small firm. We do a lot of you know, communication design and some strategy, but we're not going to take on you know, incredibly complex projects. So we're relying on the client um, to bring a lot of those components to the table and then use our critical thinking skills and creative uh, skills as designers to look at that, analyze that, evaluate it, and kind of synthesize it into something that is going to hopefully connect the truth about what's going on to the people they want to talk to. One of the quotes in Just Design that really stopped me in my tracks was this statement. Design is at the center of another process, that of mediator between consumer and product, between message and audience. It is a position of such profound influence and such limitless potential that I've never understood why so many designers seem so reluctant to fill it. That's when I knew you really did have a respect for the process of branding. And I want to talk a little bit about why you feel that there is that reluctance for so many practitioners to really understand that design is very much at the center of every process we undertake. I think a lot of designers do understand that, and maybe they just say it a different way. But the, but the, those who are reluctant, I think, are probably, it's hard, I'm not one of them, so I, I, it's hard to sort of speak for a group of which I'm not a part. But I think the reluctance perhaps comes from a, a kind of cynicism about, you know, in the mid-90s, early 2000s when I started practicing, it seemed like everyone had a proprietary process. There was always some sort of secret sauce, some sort of secret recipe that designers went through to get the best results for their clients. But it was always the same process and it just had, you know, different names. And Isn't that would, interesting? It was always the same process. I mean, it pretty much was the same process. Some, <laughs> sometimes it had an extra step or, a, you know, one less or something. But basically it was the same framework. And I think seeing that over and over and over again and seeing, okay, it's just the same thing repackaged different ways. It's like, you know, new Coke or old Coke. It's, you know, who cares? And uh, I think a lot of designers see kind of branding the same way that it's it's this – kind of tactic or strategy, I guess, for differentiation to saying, okay, well, if I say that I'm branding, then anyone who did identity design before that is doing something less. And I can elevate myself by calling what I do something different, even though we know they're not doing anything really that different. And so, you know, there are these, I mean, I, I hate to sort of do this, but there really are these strata of, you know, practitioners in design. And there are, there are people who, designers who work 
on a very sort of you know solely visual basis, and they're they love fonts and colors and papers and all the rest of it. And then there are designers that are a little bit more interested in sort of the communication problem, and there are designers who are more interested in sort of the interpretation and uh, manipulation of data, you know, so on and so forth, all the way up. And you know, branding is um, it's essentially a marketing process. I mean, it's it's part of a marketing process, which seems, I think, to many people distant from a design process, from a puritanical kind of point of view. And I'm just someone who believes that all these things need to come just a little bit closer together. I'm not really interested in having my own little territory to piss on. Well, especially if you see that this process is one of being a mediator. That's the part that I found so fascinating, that you are somehow the catalyst for the message delivery as a designer or as a brand consultant or both. And that mediation between consumer and product, between message and audience, is one that I'm really fascinated by. How do you see the designer or the branding consultant or the practitioner of anything in this realm a mediator? Well, I mean, I think there's what a thing is, right? But a thing is, it's not, a, nothing's really that objective. So if I have a widget, widget A, there's what I as a producer of widget A thinks it's about and what people should care about. Then there's the audience and there are multiple audiences, you know, um, demographically, culturally, all the, you know, any way you slice it that look at that and have a different kind of value associated with it. And as a designer, I get to, or we get to, kind of say, okay, well, you know, what's the common ground? Where do these things overlap in an authentic way? So, you know, it goes back to like that everything is okay thing. You could, I could push that website forever. No one's going to bite. Um, everyone was saying, hey, here's the thing that we really care about more. And we see that as companies move away from being uh, product-oriented companies to service-oriented companies, for example. We see it as, you know, product line shift as, you know, a company like Coca-Cola can be a music company also. I mean, we just... There's staying true to who you are, but there's also recognizing that, you know, things change and you can't be a static beacon in the center of a, you know, a swirling sea. You've got to go with the flow every once in a while. Christopher, the last thing I want to ask you about includes a little bit of a confession on my part. I have been somewhat skeptical of the notion of good design, good being in quotes, mostly because it seems to relegate everything that isn't considered to be good design, bad design. And after reading Just Design, you've persuaded me to rethink that to a large degree. And mostly that comes from the way that you've elaborated on Charles Eames's definition of good design. So my last question for you today is, how do you define good design? I have to actually go back to that same definition. So the quote you're talking about comes from a 1972 interview with Charles Eames at the Louvre where he's asked, what is the definition of design? And he says, design is a plan for arranging elements to achieve a particular purpose. And what has always resonated about that for me is that there's these five components. There's the plans, that's the strategy. There's the arrangement, that's the formalism. There's the elements, that's the content. There's the achievement, so how effective was it? And there's the goal. How worthwhile was the goal? And good design for me then is design that satisfies adequately by, I suppose, your own standard, all five of those components. So if it's a good strategy with good content and it's well laid out or presented, um, it does its job well 
and it does something worth doing, again, by your estimation, then it's good design. And for some people, that's going to be changing the world, saving the whales, killing less trees. For other people, it's going to be selling more Q-tips. And I think that that definition is a big enough umbrella that it keeps everybody in and allows everyone to kind of bring their own passion uh, to the answer. You had a footnote to the Eames definition. Do you remember what it was? Is this about creating as well? Yeah. And that's an important part. And that's something actually that one of the designers in my office who's uh, no longer working with me, he's at Facebook now, said, he said, you know, audaciously, I don't think that that Eames definition is quite complete because it has to involve creating. And I think that's, that is an important component also. It's hard for me to sit here now and uh, annotize Charles Eames's definition of design. Um, because but it's an absolutely magnificent contribution, I think, the notion of creation being central to our craft. Yeah, and it gets back to that thing we were talking about with Kurt Anderson and the sort of the stagnation of design is that, you know, unless you are bringing something to it, not just, you know, checking off the boxes, but bringing something new to it that you are interested in, then it moves from good design to great design. Christopher, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. To learn more about Christopher, please read his marvelous book, Just Design. He also has three other really terrific books that are just gold mines of information and inspiration. Or you can also head to his website at www.minesf.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.